Good morning, friends. Today's message is the second in a series uh, that I started a few weeks ago on the book of James. I'm going to call this message, Wise Up. Now, I remember uh, growing up living with my grandparents. Um, my grandpa had a, a little saying hanging on the wall by him, and even though it was in German, I later found out that it was translated into this phrase, too soon old, too late smart. The first part is certainly true. We're too soon old. I mean, the young folks can't understand this, but they will someday. I mean, nothing's more certain than the passage of time. Yesterday we were born, today we live, tomorrow we die. I mean, life rushes on for all of us. The second part is equally true. We are too late smart. Most of us learn the important stuff the hard way. We take a long time to wise up about what matters most. No man on his deathbed ever said, I wish I had spent more time at the office, but many a man has wished he had spent more time with his family or his friends. We would all like to get smarter about the things that matter most. Moving on in the book of James, we're going to look at verses 5 to 8 of chapter 1, and we're going to discover that God is ready and willing to give us the wisdom we need if we will ask him for it. But there's a condition. We must truly want the wisdom God gives. If we want it, We can have it. Now, how much do you want God's wisdom? Well, verse 5 says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Well, let's start with the if. If any of you lacks wisdom. That's a perfectly good translation that I would like to change to something like when you lack wisdom or since you lack wisdom. It's not as if James is saying, well, you're smart enough to handle most of your life on your own, but now and then you'll face a problem. Be sure and ask God for help. Now, that's true in one sense, but it's misleading. It's misleading because we're not as smart as we think we are. We are not as clever as we think we are. And boy, oh boy, we are not as wise as we think we are. We will always need God's help. We don't need God's wisdom some of the time. We desperately need God's wisdom all the time. I was in a church not long ago and noticed that the purpose statement included a phrase I don't recall seeing anywhere else. It was something like this, helping people discover the unexpected joy of desperate dependence on Jesus. Now, I really like that idea of desperate dependence because it puts us in our place. Most of us feel like we can handle the moderate problems of life. We can deal with cranky kids or a prickly boss or a bad case of the flu or a pile of work that gets dumped on our desk. We understand normal pressure. We learn how to deal with it. But sometimes things happen that just strip the gears of life so that we're just flat on the ground. And at that point, when all human options are foreclosed, our only hope is the Lord. We cry out to God in desperation, knowing that if he doesn't help us, we're in deep weeds. Now, that's a lesson we have to learn over and over again. This last week, I saw a Facebook picture of a man with a puzzled look on his face. Underneath was the caption, I'm not in that awkward, or I'm in that awkward period between birth and death. Well, I smiled as I read those words because it's so totally true. I mean, life really is a long, hard, unpredictable, and awkward period that fills our days from the time we are born until the day we die. The line between joy and sorrow is sin indeed. I mean, just one phone call can change everything. I mean, everything can turn on a dime. Everything can be going well. You could be rising in your career, have a happy marriage, or your kids and grandkids are succeeding. You can be happy in your church. Your life is filled with friends. you got money in the bank. 
your biopsy may turn out to be negative, which means you don't have cancer, and then just like that, your life changes. You hit a bump in the road, your car swerves into a ditch, and there you are, bruised and bleeding and dazed. So, we don't know, do we? The future is uncertain for all of us, and no matter how smart we are, we aren't as smart as we think we are. That's why we need God's wisdom all the time. It's too bad that often it takes a crisis to make us wake up and cry out to God. Like in verse 5, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. Now this is the reason we cry out, because this is our hope. Now I've been thinking lately about how absurd the Christian faith is, at least from the world's point of view. We're asked to believe that a God we cannot see is spoken in a book written thousands of years ago in languages most of us can't read. That book tells of miracles God wrought long ago in a land far away to ancient people whose lives are remote from ours in the 21st century. Most of all, we're asked to believe that God himself came to our planet in the person of his son who lived, died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. We entrust our whole future to that person who, as 1 Peter 1.8 reminds us, having not seen, we love. Through faith, Hebrews 11.27 says, we see him who is invisible. We bury our loved ones, and then we say, they're not here, they're in heaven with the Lord. We believe that in Jesus, they aren't really dead at all. And finally, we believe that Jesus, who walked on the earth 2,000 plus years ago, is coming back. We wouldn't say that about any other historical figure, but we do say that about Jesus. When we pray, we say words to a God who is absolutely invisible to us. We believe that somehow those words make a difference, not only to us, but to those we love. And we believe that one day when we die and are buried, we will be with the Lord in heaven. Now there's more, but you get the drift. Fundamentally, we believe that this world is not the only world there is. To say it another way, we believe that this world we call the real world is not the real world at all. We say there's another realm, another world that we've not seen, and that what happens in that other world matters just as much as what happens in this world. And we say that what happens in that other world gives us a new perspective on the trials and sorrows of this life. And i got to tell you, friends, the world simply doesn't get that. They don't see the other world the way we do. They don't even know it's there. So they don't understand how we can rejoice in suffering and not become bitter when hard things happen to us. <clears throat> Thinking about it this way helps me understand what James is saying. Our whole view of that other world where God dwells in glorious light impacts how we respond to all the pains and problems of this life. The secular person in this world just simply poo-poos all that I've just written as irrational nonsense and foolish superstition. As I've pondered this, <clears throat> I think I began to understand what my Greek professor at Wheaton College, Dr. Hawthorne, used to say. He said that if you could believe <clears throat> the first verse of the Bible you wouldn't have any trouble with the rest of it. I mean, if there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, then I can easily believe that he parted the Red Sea and that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If I can believe the first verse, then I can believe my prayers are not in vain. That's where the last part of James 1.5 becomes so crucial. Why do we cry out to God for wisdom to face all the problems of life? We do it not only because we lack wisdom, but because we believe there's a God in heaven who loves us deeply and stands ready to help us in the moment of our need. Not long ago, I got a Facebook message from a friend who has been praying for years for certain requests involving a desire for a specific career and for a marriage partner. 
to the best of my knowledge, this person is honorable and truly wants God's will. And one particular sentence struck me. It was this, because God has delayed or denied my request, I'm wondering if I'm doing something wrong. You know, that's a common thought when our prayers seem to go unanswered. And I wrote back and told them that in the last month, you know, I've heard of two funerals for people who died younger than expected. And, and, you know, that makes you stop and think about why things happen the way they do. Now, I finally settled on the fact that most things simply won't be explained in this life, either good or bad. We just don't know. Then I read an article about Moses praying, interceding really with God for Israel in Exodus 32. And because he was the, quote, friend of God, God heard and answered him. Now, the writer called Abraham's bold prayers a kind of chutzpah, godly chutzpah. God answered Abraham because he liked him. Now, that mean, does that mean that if your answers are delayed, like the friend searching <clears throat> for a part life partner, uh, are delayed, that God doesn't like you? No, that can't be right. But if we're truly the children of God, then God likes us. He adores us. He's crazy about us. He thinks of us constantly. And if that's true, and it is, then we ought not to come to God timidly. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's poured out his grace on us. He's called us his children so that we're all, that we are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. So we need to do as the Bible says and come boldly to God's throne, knowing that there we will find grace to help in the nick of time. James says, God gives us wisdom without criticizing us. Now, I like that. We pray in our desperation knowing that God will not say, what's wrong with you? You ought to be stronger than that. You ought to handle this better. He never says, what, you again? Why can't you learn the lesson the first time? I mean, praying to God is not like going to the principal's office. I mean, when you're in trouble, you need a friend, not a judge. And thank God we have a friend in high places who will not turn us away when we need him most. In verse 6 it says, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now if we read that one way, it sounds like he's talking about mental doubt or doubts about God's character or whether or not God will come through for us. And that's probably not what James has in mind. The word doubt comes from a Greek word that means to discriminate. It can have a neutral meaning, such as a judge deciding a case, or it can have a negative connotation to discriminate unfairly. James uses this word in chapter 2, verse 4, to describe how the early Christians were favoring the rich over the poor. One of the commentators I read catches the meaning when he wrote, that word doubt is not about intellectual struggle. It's about being torn between two choices. James was a good surgeon of the soul in that he understood the conflicts inside all of us. And later on in chapter 3, he comments about the tongue. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. And then he adds, praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. You see, friends, we're all a bundle of conflicting desires. We want to serve God, but let's be honest, we have our own plans. We want to be gracious, but we trample on anyone who gets in our way. We save our money only to spend it on foolish things. We all understand that it's hypocritical to stand in the church and sing holy, holy, holy on Sunday and then to curse at everyone who makes us angry on Monday. But let's be honest, it happens. We cannot expect to receive God's wisdom when we pursue a double-minded way of life. In fact, that's exactly what James says in verse 7. 
verse, that person, he said, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And why is that? Well, verse 8 gives us the answer. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. Now, the word indecisive translated, translates an unusual Greek word that means double-souled. Now, we should pause and think about that. A double-souled person lives in perpetual ambivalence. He's kind of a walking civil war, never able to commit to anything. He flits from one relationship to another, from one job to another, from one friendship to another, from one church to another. You know, you get the general idea. He's here today, gone tomorrow. Promises, makes excuses, says, I'll call you tomorrow, then forgets and apologizes. Or maybe never remembers it at all. He's just easily distracted because he deeply fears making a commitment that will require him to be in a relationship for the rest of his life. This is the tragedy of double-minded Christians. God will never give wisdom to the double-minded because they will not stand still long enough to receive it. They will not appreciate if God did give it, and they will not act on it in any case. So, we go after wisdom apart from God. And that's what finally tricked Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.6 it says, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Now, she thought she could obtain wisdom apart from God, but there's no such thing. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's kind of like saying, I want sunlight without the sun. But here's the truth. We are all double-minded people at some level and to some degree. There is in all of us the pull that says, I can do this myself. Eve wasn't some terrible person who had been conditioned to do wrong. She simply talked herself into the idea that taking a shortcut would, shortcut would make her smarter or wiser or more beautiful or more fulfilled or happier or, or whatever. It's not like she's worse than us. She's just like us and we're just like her. She lived in a paradise, but somehow that wasn't enough. And it never is. We always want something we don't have. Enter the serpent and cue the ominous music. It's the story of the whole human race repeated over and over again. Ever since Eden, we have been a double-minded people with high hopes and low desires fighting against each other. It would be good if we would just admit that fact. There's uh, some words from a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing That Come to Mind. It says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And the last few lines offer us the only hope. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Left to ourselves, friends, we will be more like those sheep going astray, going our own way, running away, always looking for greener pastures. Left to our own devices and to our own wisdom, we will always leave the God we love. And how strange and how sad and how fearful that is. The good news is we don't have to hide from the Lord. He already knows your heart. It's divided and pulled into a thousand directions. He knows the conflicting desires. He knows how much you want to do right and how quickly you do you wrong. The only hope we have is to return to the God who loves us so much that he will not let us go even when, he runs, when we run away from him. The wisdom we need is not an answer or a formula or a plan for tomorrow. We're told that Jesus himself is our wisdom. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, what you need is Christ. If you are a Christ follower, what you need is Christ. 
the need of the whole world is the same. We all need Jesus, and we need more of him than we know. We all need a come-to-Jesus meeting now and then. Perhaps for you, this is the moment. So don't be afraid to say, Lord Jesus, take the broken pieces of my life and put them back together again. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord Jesus, help us to run to you so that our hearts may be healed and we may receive the wisdom that comes only from you. In the name of Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen. Until next time, friends, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.